This is episode 29 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 29 of Ethics and Culture Cast. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. In this episode, we chat with Obianuju Akocha, a biomedical scientist and the president of Culture of Life Africa, an initiative dedicated to promotion and defense of the sanctity of life. Let's sit down with Obianuju for this excellent conversation. Thank you very much for coming to be with us today. Thank you, Ken. I'm very grateful for being on your show. And welcome back to Notre Dame, because you've been here before, even with the the Center for Ethics and Culture. Absolutely. I was here back, I think, in 2015, uh, and I was very fortunate to have been part of the class 2015 of the Vita Institute. It was amazing. had a great time, and I'm glad to be back. Wonderful. To Notre Dame. Well, welcome home. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, Where do you live now? And, and, you know, what did you study? All these sorts of things. Give us a bit of a bio. Great. So um, I was uh, born and raised in Nigeria. I'm the sixth child of my parents and, of course, the sixth of us. So I'm the youngest of six children. And uh, went to a university in Nigeria, studied microbiology out there at the University of Nigeria in Suka. And uh, you started working as a as a laboratory scientist uh, at the University of Nigeria Teaching Hospital. Uh, a couple of years later, I decided to do my master's. I went out to uh, the UK. Uh, so at that point, I emigrated to the UK, uh, where I started studying biomedical science at the University of East London. Uh-huh. And afterwards, I got a job as a biomedical scientist, and I've been in the in the UK uh, ever since. And this was back in 2006. So I have been now in. in away from my country for about 13 years. But having said that, I still get to go back to Nigeria every year and sometimes even more than once a year because my parents are in Nigeria. A lot of my friends are there. Of course, I have a lot of cousins, aunties and uncles. So nice big African family. Uh, and I've been, uh, I've been, I've been uh, doing that uh, all these years. So it's been great. But also, uh, you know, in the last couple of years too, I took on pro-life work. This was a took on pro-life work in 2012. So, well, tell um, us a bit about that. How sure. did you get involved? So I was, uh, as I had said earlier, uh, pursuing this science career, this biomedical science career that I felt, oh, this is so great. And I was happy, minded my business. But then <laughs> <laughs> but then one day I, I just happened to be watching news and uh, I, I saw Melinda Gates, the wife of Bill Gates, talking about Africa. And because particularly she was talking about Africa, I was interested in this interview she was having and I listened closely to it. Uh, it so happened to be at the very time when she was raising about $5 billion uh, back in 2012 to do her family summit and bring in contraceptives to Africa, but not just African nations. She was uh, framing it at a time as uh, developing countries. She said it was 69 poorest countries in the world where women 
had what she was calling the unmet need for contraceptives and family planning. Mm. So the more I listened to her speak about the $5 billion project, the more uh, as an African, the more I was confused as to why she wasn't going to use that money for education or for real health care that women need. And what I knew growing up in Africa and being born and raised in Africa, I felt this was a huge uh, waste of money. But not only that, I felt that she was bringing in a new brand of population control that we had never seen before and that uh-huh. is population control that is so sleekly wrapped that is difficult to, to actually uh, pinpoint that she's you know identify for what it really is um, so I wrote immediately I said I'm going to write down points why she shouldn't do this why this is such a terrible idea from an African perspective and mm-hmm. as I wrote it down it became longer and longer and longer <laughs> spent five hours on it as God will have it and then uh, it became what eventually was known as the open letter to Melinda Gates. So I sent it out to someone at EWTN who at the time I didn't know was going to even read it and that was Teresa Tomio who uh, does a Catholic connection on EWTN and Teresa opened the email, she read it, she read, she decided to read it on air and as they say the rest is history (laughs) because the moment she read it on her show uh, people heard it, someone published it, it went out and it went viral. Uh, It became this viral phenomenon back in uh, 2012. Um, The Vatican, someone at the Vatican Vatican saw it at the Pontifical Council for the Laity. The Vatican took it up. They translated it and published it on their website. Wow. And of course, that then, you know, went bigger and bigger. And uh, everybody was then asking, who is this person? You know, why has she written this? Can she tell us more? So it was a, a bit negative reaction, but mostly positive reaction. But the more people read it, the more I, I realized people are hungry or curious at least to know about what the Africans think or how the Africans see these kinds of things because of course for many years we've been hearing about Africa, family planning, this, that and the other, population control, abortion but I think at that point in time was uh, it was new for people in a way to hear it coming from an African or to hear what an African thinks from an African perspective because this letter was quite long and I tried to make my points and I tried to quote different things and the reasons why, I was trying to give reasons why I thought, uh, you know, this was this was not okay for, for these societies across the continent of Africa. Um, so that was how I really got into pro-life work. Um, people were asking me to come defend my point, to come defend mm-hmm. the open letter. And then I got um, speaking to, with, the, with the African bishops, and then I started doing some work, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But yeah. um, I got more and more involved into it to the point where uh, I now spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about these issues, writing about them, reading more, um, and trying to find out exactly what happens on the international scene between uh, 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 donors, whether it's a donor nation, so in a whole country, or whether it's a philanthropist like Melinda Gates, uh-huh. or even whether it's an NGO or a, a an institution like the United Nations. So I started taking closer look at it, and the more I looked at it, I then realized that Melinda Gates was Yes, what she was doing was quite serious, but she wasn't the only one doing that. She was just the most obvious one to me at the time. But there is a huge movement of international community that is uh, acting towards Africa in such a way that I think requires attention that it just doesn't get. Wow. Well, now, kind of after that, uh, going viral, as you mentioned, and and, um, 
you established a an organization called yes. Culture of Life Africa. Yes. So tell us a bit about Culture of Life Africa. What what are the you know challenges that yes. that you work on, and um, what does kind of the day to day life of the organization look like? Right. So Culture of Life Africa. I had to found the organization about six months after the letter went viral, but because all this. There was so much demand and there was so much going up and down and I needed a platform without having to take up a, a job at a, some pro-life organization because I still had my science career. So I wanted a bit more freedom. So I started the organization. What the organization really is about is all these things that I've been explaining is this mm-hmm. uh, bigger picture of which Melinda Gates, of course, is symbolic or, or representative, right? So uh, this is the bigger picture about how the donors and how humanitarian aid as a thing or as a as a, an industry if you like or a sector um, and how it affects African nations but also even beyond Africa the developing world what happens within those relationships so culture of life Africa is really about monitoring all of that so it's pro-life work but not in a way that the regular or average pro-life person will think about it uh, of course I'm very much interested to know what goes on with regards to abortion what what happens with regards to contraception uh, what demands they're making on us what happens with regards to um, you know sexuality issues uh, to especially towards these cultures that are more, much more traditional uh, and the cultures that are insistent on their views and values and they're much more family-oriented and faith-oriented even in, in so many ways. So uh, Culture of Life Africa delves into that, tries to get... Um, Information research, uh, you know, uh, the data from like United Nations and agencies and organizations, and even trying to go deeper into the archives of these donors uh, to try to to, uh, establish exactly what is going on without being conspiracy theorists about it. Mm. Because for for years, yes, I had been hearing the little rumblings about, oh, yeah, they hate Africans. Oh, yeah, they're trying to wipe out Africa. You know, we've heard all this. But I am a scientist and coming even from a scientific background, I am very much um, very much in love with data. I don't know if I can put it that way, but I yeah. love to use data and I, I love to I love to show links, real links uh, that 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 are that are concrete. So it's, yes, we start. We always start off with a theory, but then in sci- in the world of science, we go from theory uh, to you experiment, you research, you do whatever has to be done to establish for sure that these things are happening. Mm-hmm. So I use the same methods or the same principles uh, to expose things and to show. So that's what Culture of Life Africa does. The challenges that we are facing, of course, it's the international community, is that what we've always thought was conspiracy theory, it really isn't. It, there is a very, uh, very uh, serious, serious um, uh, encroachment going on, encroachment in culture, encroachment in ideology, encroachment. There, there is so much going on between the West, uh, West standing for the donors, and the developing countries or African nations, or even in some cases, I've, as I've spoken to many people from Latin America and the Latin American countries. So the challenges that we are facing is to is how to 
to one how to track down some of these things really happening and how to establish it and how to take it out and expose it to the world because there's one thing to mm-hmm. discover something or find out that this is actually true this is happening there is someone running some kind of population control agenda and they are running it uh, almost in a very um, in a very sleek and, and sophisticated way that, you know, Melinda Gates in one of her TED Talk talked about how she wants to make family planning like to be like Coca-Cola, you know, in the way Coca-Cola has been so universalized that yeah. is accepted in every country, every continent. She wants to sp- spread that message through the same uh, mechanisms. So when you listen to that sort of thing closely, you find out this woman is not just making a joke. She's talking about higher strategies. She's talking about uh, this strategy being used by a multi-billion dollar organization and because she is a multi-billionaire herself she can do just that so my work through Culture of Life Africa is to show this to the world that it is happening so media writing, I've written a book called uh, Target Africa I've made a small documentary called Strings Attached so just trying to put it out there Uh, and my day to day life uh, to be honest with you Culture of Life Africa is such a small organization I don't have uh, you know we don't have funding so there is no way to get staff but from time to time when I go to African nations we get volunteers to do things so it's it's almost like from project to project basis so at some point there are people helping working with me uh, to do this through Culture of Life Africa some other times uh, it's just one woman walking from her computer sitting in her kitchen in the UK and and doing that but uh, behind Behind all of that, I still have the backdrop, which is my uh, day-to-day job as a scientist. So I started pro-life work six years ago, but I still uh, have to work full-time sure. as a biomedical scientist. So I've tried to have the two lives, and somehow it has worked so far. When do you even sleep? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, Ken. <laughs> I do sleep, but because uh, I... Cause I my work as a scientist, because of how I've had to take on so much now doing both pro-life work as well as uh, carrying on with my uh, science career, uh, I've taken on a night shift contract. So, wow. <laughs> so at night I get to work in in the science field. I get to work in my lab mm-hmm. and it's me and my blood samples all night, <laughs> 12 hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, when I come off in the morning, I grab some hours of sleep and try to regulate things so that I'm not sleep deprived because we do need to take care of ourselves as well to to, to, to make sure that we are uh, battle-ready at all times for all this because much of this, especially in the pro-life arena, is a battle. Yeah. Um, and then I get to work, you know, I get to work on my day off or the hours, the few hours that I have. So Or travel across the pond or to come when be with traveling. us or, or yeah, what have you. Yeah, exactly. I do, I do a lot of travel every year, about 100,000 miles a year. Wow. Uh, going from country to country. I go from, from the UK where I live to African countries and then many times I come across this way as well to uh, to America or Canada. I've done quite a bit in Canada. Mm-hmm. The, the parliament in Canada has been very good to me. The pro-life MP. Sure, not, sure. Not, not Trudeau. Not all of them. No, no, exactly. <laughs> not everyone. Yeah. But, but I've had some pro-life MPs being very supportive. The documentary that I mentioned, Strings Attached, was actually for the first time ever screened uh, 
had its premiere at the Canadian Parliament. So oh, wow. right there on Parliament Hill, yes, uh, that was last year. So the Canadian Parliament uh, parliamentarians who are pro-life have been very good and, and accommodating and supportive, and they've listened each time I've come to complain. So I do go to Canada. Um, and in addition to that, I go to other European countries as well. So recently I was at the EU Parliament. I spoke about last, last week, I spoke at the EU Parliament at a ethics and human dignity event uh, where I was one of two panelists and, and that was great that they also uh, the MEPs who were there who were pro-life, pro-family, they were very good, very attentive to what I had to say, and uh, and it, it was um, it was uh, very well received uh, what I had to say. So that's for me. That's all very satisfying. Yeah. Now we mentioned or we talked kind of offline. You were describing when you were getting started in your work. You uh, reached out to and found great success in working with the bishops uh, and uh, kind of working through the kind of personal contacts within the hierarchy of the church. Why are the bishops of Africa such a strong and effective resource for your pro-life work? Right. So the 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 church in Africa um, is a network as well. So the church in Africa, in so many ways, uh, I think, gives us a little bit of a a vision of what the church may have been like many centuries ago. Because uh, if you come to think of it, the church in Africa is only about 100 years old, wow. or a little over 100, in some places a little under 100 years old. So some places the church is only about 90 years old, you know. When, when Sub-Saharan the Africa, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So this is in the Sub-Saharan African region. Of course, I'm not speaking of where St. <laughs> Augustine came right, from. Right, right, exactly. we, have to be, we have to make it clear, you know, the no. Carthage and, and all of that, all True. of those areas in the northern part of Africa. No, I'm speaking about the sub-Saharan Africa when the uh, Irish uh, missionaries, mostly Irish missionaries, uh, came to evangelize us. That was only in the 1920s. I mean, my grandparents got baptized uh, October of of 1926. And they were like one of the first few in my village uh, who who got baptized. So you can imagine it's not even 100 years yet uh, that that the gospel came to us. So in, in some parts of sub-Saharan African region. So in many ways today, the church is still so young and so uh, vibrant. vibrant sure. Yeah, and so vital and vibrant. So the church in Africa has this quality that, of course, yes, number one, it is about the gospel. The church's mission is about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, spreading the word of God, spreading the teachings of of the church, which, of course, is the teachings of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is another level, a secondary level to the work of the church in Africa, and that is they are there as uh, carers, they are there as educators. The the African uh, Catholic church particularly is educating more children in Africa Africa than anybody could imagine with regards to the percentage. We own many, many schools in most of the countries, um, the hospitals as well, the healthcare system. Uh, if the Catholic Church in Africa would, would walk away from healthcare, I think everything will crumble because in some African countries there are uh, places where Catholic hospitals make up about 40% or 50% of all hospitals in the country. Oh, wow. And there are some parts of, of even the healthcare system like HIV care, where the church is providing an overwhelming, um, like a, a huge part of it, a huge chunk of it, much more than half of it, uh, than, than the government side of things. So the church forms a second 
the second drill layer of mission, which is about caring about humanity, mm-hmm. the people in Africa, doesn't matter whether they're Catholics or not. And as a result of this role, as a result of this second layer of mission, that means that the church is um, in a, inevitably in a position to, uh, to also be a channel to spread messages. You know, if it's a good message, even if it's not necessarily a Christian message, if you like, because I tell my friends, yes, I am pro-life, partly because I'm Christian, but not just that. It's the message for everyone. I will, mm-hmm. If I met someone who wasn't Christian today, I'm still very eager to share with them uh, this pro-life message. Um, so the church is a fantastic, fantastic channel or network for that. But because also, thank God, the church is one and universal, there are Catholic dioceses in South Africa that are linked, and Catholic bishops in South Africa that are linked all the way to bishops in West Africa, you know, in East mm-hmm. Africa, the church is one. So when I started my pro-life work, the first place that I was led to, or the first place that where I had the most success, or what even I, I, I would credit for the great success of the work, um, is the fact that I, I went through bishops that I knew, and the bishops that I knew introduced me to their friends, their brothers, bishops. Bishops yeah. in other countries and you know in other parts of Africa where otherwise I would not have had an entrance to. So they then uh, through through those connections or those networks we were able to start off at least things like uh, pro like pro-life conferences that had, had not been seen in some of the parts of Africa, you know, where I, had, I was working, uh, pro-life marches that we had, we had mm-hmm. in, in several countries. Um, we, they were taking the messages to schools. They were bringing people together through the, the network of the church beyond the church as a family. So they were reaching out to other people in their communities. I went to one country, which was quite spectacular, Sierra Leone, where there were only four Catholic dioceses. So in other was four Catholic bishops, but the bishops organized for me to have town halls in the four dioceses while I was there. So when I went to those town halls, the most surprising thing to me was that there were so many Muslims at these um, these uh, town halls because it's a very, very Muslim country and that's yeah. why there's only four dioceses. Uh, it's uh, I think a 70% Muslim country. So when I went to these town halls there were like more Muslims than than uh, than Catholics and other Christians but the bishops, what the bishops did was that the bishops sent out messages to the to the leaders of these uh, you know, the mosques and the imams and everybody and said we're having a, this pro-life message and we need you to come listen. So the town halls were amazing and fantastic because at the time uh, there were politicians within the parliament of Sierra Leone that were pushing an abortion bill that the people at the grassroots didn't like. So there was such a mobilization, mind you, which something that started by me making a phone call to the to the, the president of the Catholic Bishops Conference, but I was able to reach much more, uh, or much a big, bigger part of the society than the Catholics because uh, the Muslims took it up as well and they, they, you know, they were able to push back that way and up to now they still haven't had a, the pro-life bill passed through successfully. I mean, the bill has passed, but the president simply refused to sign it. Oh, wow. So it, it just stayed there dormant, and they still don't have legal abortion. Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, can you tell us a bit about what it's like to be a pro-life advocate, not 
merely in Nigeria, but and to, to speak really as an African. Yes. Uh, is there is there truly an understanding of family values that are shared across a continent as diverse in language and ethnicity and culture as Africa is? Absolutely. So Africa is, one can even glean from what I'm saying, uh, Africa is very diverse, really, mm-hmm. really diverse. It's not the way in the West when they talk of diversity, you know, they talk about race and all of that. No, Africa is truly uh, diverse, even yeah. though, yes, majority blacks, but we still see our diversity because we have many languages, many ethnicities. Or in, even in Nigeria alone, we have so many tribes, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then you go across to other neighboring countries, sometimes they speak different languages, uh, all going back to the colonial days. So some parts of Africa, English is predominantly the language, the common language spoken, because we always have our own native tongue, our own native language uh, uh-huh. from our tribes and ethnic groups. But we have English in so, so many, many parts of Africa. We also have French spoken uh, in many, many parts of Africa, the mm-hmm. Francophone African countries. Uh, but then in a few countries, you do have Portuguese being spoken in a country like Angola. Angola. Yeah. Uh, you in a, one or two countries, you do have Spanish being spoken. So it, it all is linked to the colonial days. So as a result, Africa is diverse. But as an African person, as a Nigerian woman, I love to go beyond uh, the borders of my country, uh, reaching out to other African countries, because I also have realized, um, you know, over the years that the one thing that the Africans we are uh, attracted to is this idea of Pan-Africanism. We still, I don't know that we have achieved it, but there is such a love uh, or and a strong identity that Africans carry that even when I see an Ethiopian or a Kenyan somewhere in, in America here, eh, they say my, my sister. And if mm-hmm. I, saw, you know, if I now say my brother, right? So even though we're, we're, so, we're from countries so far apart, yeah. even though in some cases we speak different languages, I might see someone from Togo and we, I say, well, my brother or my sister, right? And, and they, will, they will feel the same way. So even though there, there are these things that make it a little bit difficult for communication like language barriers um, but we there is such an identity or sort of a, an attraction t- towards this um, pan-africanism that the african nations are one in in many ways um, however talking about the values that you talked about that whether there are there are things that we hold in common for sure there are things we hold in common our customs are different our tribes are different even within nigeria there are customs and and uh, you know cultures that we have and traditions that we have that a yoruba person for example which is another tribe in nigeria than mine the igbo tribe there are things that are different completely different our own native languages are completely different and unrelated but the one thing that all these tribes across the african continent held together uh, that you see common thread is something like the value of human life the sanctity mm. of human life the belief in bloodlines right mm-hmm. so we believe so much in in bloodlines like the the bloodlines hold us together with the generations past the present generation the generations coming in the future the reason i bring up bloodlines is that this strong belief of bloodlines no matter the tribe or ethnic group within the african continent 
This belief then is completely opposed to abortion. Whether it sets of being opposed to abortion or not, but abortion strikes right at the heart of our bloodline. You abort a child, you've not only aborted a child, you have actually killed off a part of a bloodline which links a family or a family member to, to the generations past. And so I think and I believe strongly from everything I have seen across the continent that our culture and our tradition uh, is not compatible in any way with abortion. Uh, so abortion, it's not like people don't know what abortion is in African countries or that even that people don't do abortion. People do abortion. There are doctors who are making uh, money doing abortions legally and illegally in countries. It depends on which country they are. But the one thing that the society uh, across the different African countries, what they believe in or where they stand is that they would reject it strongly and hold it up as a vice. It's a vice. So it's people are doing a lot of terrible things in different countries. There is crime, of course, where there is, inter- where there is intense poverty, there is crime, yes, mm-hmm. that happens in every country, you know, in communities where there's more poverty, there's higher crime. That can be proven. But Africa is like that as well. A lot of illegal things happening in different sectors, in different ways, lots of corruption. But the African people, I believe, at least from what I have seen traveling through different countries, the African people still want to know the line and the difference between what is illegal and wrong and what is right and just. So uh, somebody, I'm going to paraphrase now a quote from a man who is actually American, but I believe what he said applies so perfectly to the African nation. And this is Dennis Prager, who said at one point in time that, um, and I need to get this right, he said, there, there is hope for a country uh, when its people do do wrong, even even if the people are doing wrong, even if the people are going out of their way and committing crimes and doing these evil things, there's still hope because there's hope that one day they will rethink, they will convert, they will revert and go back to what is right. But there is no hope for a nation that then decides they are going to redefine evil to mean good because in that way there is absolutely no reference point, there is no place to go from there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what pretty much where a lot of the African countries are that, and that's this, the general sentiment is that yes, people hate abortion and have rejected abortion, and anytime you give African nations a chance, they will reject abortion overwhelmingly. Um, and then people come from the United Nations and tell us, oh, but you guys are still having illegal abortions. And they publish all these things uh, and say, oh, there's this million, number of million illegal abortions going on in Africa. So therefore, abortion should be legalized. But the general sentiment is that there is, the people know that there will be, there, there is still hope. Eh? There is still mm-hmm. hope that one day we will have a better system that meets women at the point of their need. There will be a system where women are, are embraced when they are in crisis situation, there will be a better system where our health care is good enough for women to have the confidence, you know, to go through pregnancy and know that there is there is not a problem. Yes. So there, there, there are all these things. In, we know that one day we will come to that point where those things are in place. But we will we will be completely a hopeless people if anybody then comes in to redefine what we know is wrong and mm-hmm. tell us it's no longer wrong, is right. So uh, that's where we stand and that's where I think the, the common sentiment across the continent, I can confidently say that's where uh, we all stand on this. Wow. Well, you've kind of hinted at the kind of my last question, and that is, do you see signs of hope in your work? 
Yes, I see a lot of hope. <laughs> uh, I see I see a lot of hope because uh, you know speaking to so many people in Africa and out of Africa, um I know that that the African people don't want abortion. And somebody would say, "Oh, but what about these women online who are Africans and they say they want abortion?" Of course, you will find a small minority of people who are given a lot of platform and they keep saying they want abortion and all that. But anytime the chance is given, anytime the opportunity is given, uh the African people will reject abortion. They have done it in many countries. Uh they always reject 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 abortion so that's one one side of the the hope that i have but then the other side of this is that um the a lot of the pressure that we are now going through if you go to any african country wherever there is a fight what quote unquote fight for abortion rights or they're coming towards an abortion bill or any time you see it happening you look deeper into it you find out that there is outside influence so it even though yes it's depressing for me to see and it's frustrating for me to see that i come in and i'm i'm going through things in an african country and you find out there's some british organization here spain the bankrolling this movement or or bankrolling the effort or or bankrolling the parliamentarians who are bringing forward the bills uh, but it still gives me hope that we don't really have organic what you call organic pro abortion movements or we mm-hmm. don't have our own you know african parents for sexual rights or whatever right they, there's always some link if you have a bunch of women doing it if you check they're not doing it with their money they're doing it with some american money or british or you know they're doing it with dollars and euros and pounds um so my hope is that the africans still stay true to the core values um and i'm i'm hoping that one day that the west will listen because i have also total confidence in the pro life movement within the west and the good people in the west i have lived in england uh, all these 13 years and i have uh, been in america so many times i come to america about five times a year and i have many many american friends eh? you included <laughs> and i know that there are so many good people who have the the desire for things to change you know they don't want this kind of outside influence this american influence going to africa they're ashamed when i tell them do you know that the american you know we there was this that happened and it had to do with american supporters they hate it and they they reject this idea that one day uh, the good people the the voice of the good people and the power of the good people in the western nations will we'll also get to a point where we can feel the effects as well, so where we can feel the effects in africa already something small has happened but is significant that the mexico city policy um was reinstated by president donald trump and for eight years leading to that so during the the last administration here in the united states uh, there was all this money going to overseas for abortion mm-hmm. it was going to uh, organizations like international planned parenthood federation that were then pushing for abortion in african countries so it was very uh, such an encouraging thing for me to see uh, that funding stream blocked up mm-hmm. by the current administration uh, my hope is that there will then be more things you know more more, more of this kind of life affirming um gesture from from western nations i want to see people from the eu doing the same thing i want to see people from the united kingdom doing the same thing that they are more 
conscious, um, uh, cautious and conscious of, of the cultural views and values of the people who they are funding. So all of this would be my hope. And uh, I pray a great deal about it. And I'm hoping yeah. to get what I want. <laughs> well, we'll keep you in our prayers. And please keep us in yours, I too. I <laughs> thank you so much for coming to be with us today. Thanks, Ken. I'm grateful. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to Obia Nuju for the marvelous conversation. Find links to her open letter to Melinda Gates, as well as her recent presentation hosted by our friends at the McGrath Institute for Church Life in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please give us a review wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is, I don't know, by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>